0: the reading of God's holy and inspired word, please be seated. Let's pray together. Our oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning, we thank you for this Lord's day, this day where we come to worship you. We pray now that you would send your spirit to do what only you can to open up eyes to your hearts and minds. Lord, may we receive your word for what it truly is, the word of God, and not the word of men. Lord, I pray that you get me out of the way. May be your truth that is spoken. May the truths contained in your word impact your people in the way that you intend them to. Lord, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word now, unto the edification of your people, and the conversion of sinners who grace In Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing again in Galatians. Uh, and we're coming now into a section as Paul begins to transition uh, to draw some application. Now, Galatians, again, is a letter uh, written to the churches in the region of Galatia, where Paul has been addressing the false teaching that has begun to worm its way into the churches. Paul has been building his case, demonstrating that the message of these false teachers is no gospel at all, but is functionally a reliance on works of the law. By requiring circumcision and possibly other elements of ceremonial law for salvation, Paul says that these false teachers are enslaving their hearers to a system of religion that cannot bring salvation. So he calls that a different gospel, one that is no gospel at all. And so now, having come through the majority of his arguments in chapter five, Paul begins to transition from the theological to some of the more practical. Now, to this point in the letter, we've seen he's mostly been concerned with dismantling and answering the arguments of his opponents, and here now we get into some of the practical application and instruction. Uh, this gets very helpful for us, uh, for both for the individual Christian and also for the life of the church. So let's dive in here together. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. As he said at the beginning of the chapter, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You were called to freedom, brothers. Christianity is freedom. Notice this characterization here. Don't miss the significance of this. Christianity is freedom. You have been called to freedom. Now this freedom in Christ has been contrasted with the various forms of slavery that Paul has mentioned to this point. He argued earlier that those who worship false gods are in slavery to them. Before the Gentile Galatians had come to be known by God, Paul said they were in slavery to those uh, that were by nature not gods. They were worshiping and serving with all of their lives, seeking the approval of false gods. But by turning to the works righteousness of the Judaizers, they would simply be trading in one form of slavery for another. Paul has made clear that circumcision itself is a matter of indifference, right? In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, only faith working through love. And so the Judaizers have taken something that was a matter of indifference and have treated it as if it were essential for salvation. They have taken man-made rules and elevated them to the level of doctrine of dogma. And this continues to be a challenge today, although it may not be with the issue of circumcision, we still see people, uh, groups and churches, making laws and rules to bind the conscience that have no basis in Scripture. Man-made rules and traditions that get treated as if they had been handed down from God on Mount Sinai. Now, when Christians do this kind of thing, we are following in the footsteps of the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees was a group of Jews uh, living at the time of Christ. Uh, And the Pharisees, through their traditions, had built a fence around the law. That is, they made additional rules that were not given by God, ostensibly to protect the laws and rules that were given by God. So they built this fence around the law. Uh, to give an example of one of these fence laws, uh, God had commanded his people to avoid the pagan practice of boiling a young goat in its mother's milk, something that was likely a fertility cult practice. You may remember we covered that in Exodus. Um, and so the Pharisees, to avoid even coming close to breaking this law, developed the tradition that not only can you not boil a young goat in its mother's milk, but you can't even have milk and meat at the same meal. Now, after that was accepted, they then determined that you needed to have uh, certain hours of separation between meat meals and milk meals. Now, that way, the milk and the meat would not be cooked together in your digestive system. After that, it was decided that you must also separate the dishes that you use for milk and the dishes you use for meat, since there was a possibility that the particles of meat or milk uh, left on the plate could get mixed and eaten. Now we see Jesus in his earthly ministry was in frequent conflict with the Jews over the observance of these kind of man-made laws, these traditions and rules that were invented by men. In one encounter, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees, quoting from Isaiah, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And one of the important and liberating elements of Christianity, one of the ways in which Christianity is freedom is that it grants us freedom from man-made rules. Here's our confession. God alone is Lord of the conscience, and he has left it free from human doctrines and commandments that are in any way contrary to his word or not contained in it. Yes, Jesus said, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. It's important that we also not seek to place such a yoke on others. Consider again Paul's words to the Colossians If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? So notice here what Paul says about these rules. They are according to human precepts and teachings, man-made rules. He goes on in Colossians verse 23, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping indulgence of the flesh. So, in other words, these man-made rules, you know, being hard on your body, kind of living like a monk, uh, avoiding certain things that God has not actually forbidden in his word. Paul says this all has the appearance of wisdom, but it's really of no actual value, no help to true growth in holiness. And so Paul chastises the Colossians for submitting to rules and regulations that are not grounded in the word of God, but were simply human precepts, human teachings. And so Christian liberty, therefore, part of our freedom in Christ is our freedom from man-made religious rules. Scripture alone is a sole infallible rule for faith and practice. God alone is our lawgiver and judge. It is therefore to him that we will give account actually very important that we understand this if we are going to grow in true holiness. The fact is if we miss this point and find ourselves submitting to a yoke of man-made rules there are quite a few problems that follow. Number one is misplaced guilt. Right, By yielding to man-made religious systems uh, this will lead us to feel guilty for doing things that God has forbidden. Oh, pardon me. Guilty for doing or right, I'll start that over. This will lead us to feel guilty for doing things that God has not forbidden. Our consciences are a good friend, and they are a good guide, but we must remember that they themselves are not infallible. And so our consciences, like our thoughts, emotions, and everything else, need to be shaped by Scripture. If we are yielding to man-made religious laws and rules, We will feel guilty for things that we have no need to feel guilty for. We will bear burdens that God did not intend for us to bear, and this will get in the way of actually following the things that God has commanded. Number two, if it's not guilt, our adherence to man-made religious rules may very likely lead us into pride. As Albert Barnes notes in his commentary, pride may be pampered, while the flesh grows lean. As Paul said, these human traditions and regulations have an appearance of wisdom but are of no true value in stopping indulgence to the flesh. We can see this is one way in which that could happen. The person who rigidly follows man-made religious rules appearing very outwardly religious and holy becomes a very easy Once we've created our own standard, and suppose that God is pleased by our keeping of that standard, it becomes very easy to look down on others who are not keeping our standard. So as the flesh grows lean, that is, as we feel the effects of whatever our rule-keeping might be, at the same time, pride we suppose ourselves better than others and look down on them. And so the prideful person following man made religion is the modern day Pharisee. Right? This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Right? Our only doctrines are to be the commandments. And number three, uh, this can lead to a false view of God. By yielding to the yoke of man-made religious systems, we can very easily begin to view God as being harsh and exacting. Right? We will see Him as uptight, persnickety, fussy, and perpetually disappointed in us. But this is not the God of the Bible. This is not our Heavenly Father. God is much happier than many people suppose. We see in his word that God is a God of overflowing and abundant generosity. Just consider, he made this world and filled it with good things for us to enjoy. Have you ever thought about this? Take every good thing in creation, every lawful pleasure, everything you like that is a good thing and ask Whose idea was that? Who invented that good thing? Well, God himself is the source of goodness, beauty, and truth. He is the inventor of earthly pleasures. He made this world and packed it with good things and loaded it with the potential for us to make more good things, and he declared that it was all very good. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God is the inventor of sunshine, smiles, sweet oranges, swimming, adrenaline rushes, campfires, and laughter. His gifts and his creation, when rightly understood, will reveal his character to us. When rightly understood and used, the good things that God has made are meant to reveal to us the goodness of the giver. So see how this relates to the man-made religion and rules that would forbid, uh, you know, as Paul said, do not eat, do not taste, do not touch. We see then that sin is not in the stuff. Sin is not in the pleasure. Rather, sin is the twisting of the good thing. Sin is an attempt to have the good in a wrong way or on terms other than what God intended. Sin is when we misplace, when we remove God from his proper place and make a a God out of the thing. When we make a God out of the gift rather than seeing the gift as something pointing us to the goodness of the giver. So, what we need then is not to reject God's good gifts. It is not to come up with man made religious rules and traditions uh, through asceticism and harshness to the body, as Paul describes in Colossians. For as he says, those are of no actual use in stopping indulgence of the flesh. What we need is a rightly ordered heart. A rightly ordered heart that has God in his proper place, a God on the throne of our hearts. And a rightly ordered heart is then free to receive the good things of creation, keeping them in their proper place, filling us with gratitude, and pointing us to the goodness of the God who made them and gave them to us. As Joe Rigney writes, when we love God supremely and fully, we are able to integrate our joy in God and our joy in His gifts, receiving the gifts as shafts of His glory. Supreme love for God orients our affections and orders our desires and integrates our loves. When we love God supremely, we are free to love creation as creation and not as God, because the divine excellence is really present in the gift We are free to enjoy it for his sake. God's gifts become avenues for enjoying him, beams of glory that we chase back to the source. God is a generous and loving God. His joy that he has in himself overflows to his people. He has packed this world with good things, and he has told us that all of this is actually only the appetizer, for we are headed for a banquet feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. God is a generous God, a joyful God, the God at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm sixteen, eleven. Man-made religious systems misrepresent God. Those who follow them will frequently become shrill, joyless, self-serious, self-righteous, and will convince themselves and those around them that this is what God is like, too. Christianity is not about slavery to yet another set of rules. Christianity is freedom, for you were called to freedom, brothers. But then Paul gives us a very, very important flip side to this coin. He says, For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now when we begin to speak about Christian liberty, we speak about all the privileges and the glorious freedom that we have in Christ there is a danger that people will misunderstand or misapply these truths. And so Paul gives the all-important warning here, do not use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge your flesh. This freedom that is ours in Christ is not intended to give us a license to sin. Remember, Christ has not freed us to sin, He has freed us from sin, as we covered recently, there is no freedom found in sin. Our Confession puts it well, those who use Christian liberty as an excuse to practice any sin or nurture any sinful desire pervert the main objective of the grace of the gospel to their own destruction. And they completely destroy the purpose of Christian liberty. This purpose is that we, having been delivered from the hands of all our enemies, may serve the Lord without fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our lives. Our freedom in Christ is freedom from the curse and bondage of sin. Jesus has paid our debt. The punishment that was due to us for our sin, Jesus Christ has borne in our place. We have now been granted the Holy Spirit of God, who dwells within us and frees our nature. Remember, we were previously in bondage and slavery to sin. And we are now free. As long as we are in slavery to sin, or as long as we are in slavery to some other master, whether that be sin, man-made religion, or anything else, we are not free to serve our true master. Remember what God said to Pharaoh? Let my people go, that they may serve me. As long as they were under the yoke of slavery in Egypt, they were not free to serve God as he required. They could not offer the sacrifices that God had commanded. They could not keep the Sabbath day as God required. All of these things, because they were under the dominion of their Egyptian masters. And so, God then set them free so that they could serve him And that same principle applies to us. If we are in slavery, if we are in bondage to sin, we are not free to serve God. Our will is constrained. Our desires are working against us. Similarly, if we are in bondage to man-made religious rules and systems, these can prevent or distract us from serving God as he requires.
1: Christian liberty, therefore,
0: the freedom we have in Christ, is all about being set free to serve our true master. God frees our will. He ransoms us from slavery to sin, grants us his spirit and the grace we need to honor him in any and every situation. He has redeemed us from our former slavery so that we may serve in freedom. And so anyone who would use the doctrine of Christian liberty as an excuse for sin flips Christian liberty on its head. They completely destroyed its purpose. Brothers and sisters, Christ has freed us from sin. Not too soon. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now we get an interesting contrast here. Notice right after it, contending zealously for the importance of freedom, saying, do not serve these other masters, Paul now commends a particular type of service. Notice, through love, serve one another. He says in Romans 13, verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. Our freedom is freedom unto the service of our true master, and the true summary of our master's law is love. Paul's argument through Galatians has not been against the law of God. Rather, as he has demonstrated time and again, the problem with the Judaizers is that they were misreading, misusing, and misapplying the law of God. They were looking to the law as a path to justification, and Paul said it was never given as a means of life. Law-keeping is not our path to justification. You cannot earn a right standing before God through your law-keeping. Rather, what the law did, Paul says, is that it imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So in this way, we've seen the law is like a mirror. What it does is it shows us our condition. If right? you look into the perfect mirror of God's law and you see how diseased your, faith, your, your face truly is, it shows us our sinfulness and therefore shows us our need for help and our need for saving. God's law is like a mirror. But here now in chapter 5, Paul describes another use for the law. Right? It does more than that. Verse 14, he says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So catch this, love is the fulfilling of the law. Our Lord Jesus Christ, when he has asked what is the great commandment or the essence of the law, with which one command encapsulates the most of it? But he said in Matthew twenty-two, thirty-seven: 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So, catch this. How then does Jesus Himself summarize the law of God? Love. Love for God and love for neighbor. As He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love for God and neighbor is what the law is all about, it is the fulfilling of the law. And so, Paul says, through love, serve one another, for love is the fulfilling of the law. Right? There's been so much talk in Galatians about the law and the proper use of the law. Paul boils it down here. Love one another. Serve one another, for love is the fulfilling of the law. So then this becomes very important. If love for God and love for neighbor are the, are the two greatest commandments... Then we must ask do we know what this looks like now it's not as simple as you might initially think right just think of how many rival answers you can get to those questions if you were to ask the world and uh, even certain other churches and they may tell you that love for neighbor means tolerance means acceptance of any decision that they will make regardless of whether or not God has forbidden it. Right? Affirmation. They will tell you that being a loving person means that you must jump on the bandwagon, the latest bandwagon, and signal your supports for whatever the issue of the day might be. Some churches will tell you that love for God can basically be defined any way that we choose. Right, so long as we think we have some warm feelings toward our vague notion of God, we are good to go. And so we ask then, biblically speaking, how are we to define love? Does God's word give us any guidance on this? Yes. Love for God and love for neighbor is a summary of, Of the law of God. And so if you wanted then to know in more detail what love for God and love for neighbor actually looks like, where would you go? You'd go to that which was being taught. You'd go to the law of God. And so we see then, not only is the law a mirror that shows us our sinfulness, the law is also a guide. It shows us what love for God and love for neighbor really looks like. It reveals to us God's will for our lives. It shows us how God desires us to live. So if you are a Christian, if you have true and living faith, your heart has been changed, you desire to love and glorify God, then you see how important this question really is. What is love for God? How can I have love for God? How can I live in light of love for God? How does God define love for God? And we don't have time to go in depth on all of these. Simply start with the first four commandments. Worship and serve the true and living God and Him only. Worship the true and living God in the way that He ordains, not through images, idols, or through anything else that He has not commanded in His Word. Number three: Show honor and reverence for the name of the Lord. Right. Let all of your thoughts and words and actions, anything toward God, show the reverence that He is due. Do not take His name in vain. And number four, worship God regularly at the times that He appoints, as the commandment says, "Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Or as Dr. Bodhi Bakram has summarized these commandments, we are to worship the one true and living God, and we are to do so rightly, reverently, and regularly. These are our duties. If you want to know what love for God looks like, meditate on these commandments. Go into detail, into depth on these commandments. If you want a great exposition of them, I'd recommend uh, one of the Reformed Catechisms at uh, Westminster. Just <clears throat> also, if you'd like more depth, we preach through all of these in our Ten Commandments in our Exodus series. You can find them on our YouTube channel as well. Commandments 6 to 10, then refer to our duties to our neighbor. All right, kids. What's commandment number five? Honor your father and your mother. Number six, do not murder. Number seven, do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet. So here we have a good summary. How do we love our neighbor? Honor the authorities God has placed in your life. Respect and defend innocent life. Honor marriage, protect protect chastity, and avoid sexual immorality. Honor your neighbor's property. Do not take from them or steal from their value. Honor your neighbor's reputation. Tell the truth, and protect your neighbor's good name. And do not even entertain a thought in your mind that could lead you to violating one of these other commandments. Love is summary. Romans 1389. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment is summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So here's a good way to think of it. We see all of God's moral law, all those hundreds of instructions, can be summarized by the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments can be further summarized by the two commandments, love God and love neighbor. And so once again, I hope you can see how silly it would be for a professing Christian to say, you know, we now in the New Covenant, we don't need to care about God's law or the Ten Commandments. Uh, here now, we are just called to love. I love God. and love others. Really? Did you know that you just gave Jesus a summary of the law of God? Christ has set us free from the curse of the law. He took the curse that we had earned for our law-breaking by dying on the cross in our place. And now that we are no longer under the curse of the law, the law becomes our guide and our friend. It reveals to us the will of God. It shows to us what love for God and neighbor truly look like. Furthermore, one of the promises of the new covenant was that God would write His law on our hearts. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three, speaking of the new covenant He will make, God says for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So the law, first written with the finger of God on tablets of stone, is now written onto the hearts of the people of God by his Holy Spirit. So the law is therefore relevant, authoritative, and helpful, To the Christian. Those who desire to love and serve God. Those who want to know what love for God and love for neighbor looks like. Those who want to learn what true justice looks like. Go and study the law of God. It is our guide and our friend. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another. Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Now the great irony in Galatia is that the Judaizers who claimed to hold the law in such high esteem, their teaching, the fruit of their teaching, was not love, but was division within the body, quarreling. Factionalism. You just picture Peter and the other Jewish Christians pulling back, withdrawing themselves from the Gentile believers. And we've seen Paul's critique throughout Galatians has not been against the law itself. It has been against those who misunderstand and therefore misuse and misapply the law. For as we've seen, the law of God, properly understood and properly applied, results in love. Our freedom in Christ is freedom from sin for the service of our true master and his law. As free men, we now, through love, are called to serve one another. Catch that from the text. We are called to serve one another through love. And in this text we see again the description of what ought to characterize the church. We are to serve one another through love. The local church, once again we see, is not to be just a collection of strangers or perhaps acquaintances who, come, who happen to come to the same place once a week. Rather, these are your brothers and sisters in the faith. We are called to serve one another through love. You know, it's a common mindset that says we need to use our gifts to serve the church, and that's true. Well, therefore, I need to have some kind of position in the church in order to use my gifts. And so you have churches creating uh, positions so that all the people can have some kind of a role. Uh, So you have like the third assistant to the assistant parking attendant, you know, just to give somebody, everybody something to do.
1: The mindset being, without
0: some kind of official position, I can't serve the church. Now, well-intentioned though this may be, I think it can forget something important. And that is, the church is the people. And so if you want to serve the church, ask this, what can I do to build up the body of Christ how can I serve my brothers and sisters through God? Now, while there are a number of practical things that we would love to have your help with, please come talk to us if you want to help with those. Let us also keep in mind that there are innumerable things that we can be doing to build up the church, to serve one another. Whoever you are, if you are young, if you are old, whoever you are, you can serve the body. You can, through love, serve one another. And so for us to become the kind of body that can function in this way, we are going to need to know one another. We will need to be involved in one another's lives. We need to be committed, therefore, to praying with and for one another. We will need to become well-equipped, well-taught, and close-knit so I invite you, come to prayer. We gather every Lord's Day at 9.15 to pray. Bring your kids, bring your babies, and take them out of the room if you have to. Uh, but come, spend time with your brothers and sisters. Get to know one another. Praise uh, And then stay for Sunday school. Let us work through scripture and doctrine together. Let us connect with one another and get to know each other. Come to midweek study. Let us sing together. Learn doctrine and theology that we might grow to love and worship God together. Open your home. Show hospitality. Get to know your brothers and sisters. Talk to each other about the things of God, right? about what you've been learning and how you've been growing. Uh, challenge and encourage each other. You know, it's funny, but mostly sad. How often it is when people complain about a lack of community in a church, those same people have often been skipping everything that the church does outside of Sunday morning. And they themselves were not committed to hospitality. Brothers and sisters, through love, serve one another. Get to know the needs of those around you. Our goal is to create a culture of discipleship.
1: And what we mean by that
0: is a culture in our church where everyone understands that they have a responsibility to everyone else. Notice here from the text, Paul does not just tell the elders and the deacons to serve the church, but all the congregation, all the people are given the same instruction through love Serve one another. So we ask that, what does true Christian brotherly love look like? Well, among other things, I think at the heart is this concept. It means that we will desire to see our brothers and sisters grow in love for Christ. Right? We are not simply seeking to create community here for community's sake encouraging, though that can be. But rather, the church as a community has to help us a higher purpose. We are worshipers of God. We are followers of Christ. It is therefore essential that at the heart of our community is a mutual concern to see one another grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The the quote-unquote consumer mentality has no place in the church. The idea that you are essentially a customer coming to the church that then provides you with a service is foreign to Scripture. The church is not a business, and the people are not the customers. The church is a body, and the people are the members of that body. We should not think of ourselves as customers, but as participants. The church is the people. And we, as the church, have a duty to one another. Through love, serve one another. So whoever you are, encourage one another. Build up the body. Challenge one another. Hold each other accountable and pray for one another. Fix it in your mind that your goal for every other member of the body is that they would grow. And then do what you can to help them with that. We all have a duty to each other. So let us create a culture of discipleship. In addition to developing a healthy church, one of the effects of growing in this way will actually be to make us more effective in our witness. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed for the unity of his people as a means of witnessing to the world. Jesus says this, John 17, uh, 20, 21. He says, I am not only praying for my disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So that's us, those who believe in Christ through the word of the apostles. Uh, So that they all may be one, Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So notice there, the unity of the church, our being one, just as the Father and the Son are one, Jesus says, is so that the world may believe that you sent me. Our unity in the church, our love for one another, our service for one another, is part of our witness to the world. And so we see how important this is. We are to love and serve one another, not only for our own sakes, and the sakes of our brothers and sisters, but also for the sake of our witness. We are a people of grace. We are the people of God. Second Corinthians 5 verse 20 refers to Christians as ambassadors for Christ. And so we are, in a very real sense, the representatives of Christ to the world. God making his appeal through us. We therefore must preserve the purity of the true gospel, the glorious message of freedom. We must not let it be tainted by man-made religion and traditions, which would misrepresent God as if he were simply another harsh master among men. We must not load burdens on people that God did not intend. We must remember that our freedom in Christ is freedom from sin and not freedom to sin. In the process, what we will find as we grow in grace and maturity is that God truly does have our best interest at heart. Psalm 84, verse 11, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield, The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. So we will see God is not being a killjoy by giving us the commandments that He does. All of His commands are serving our ultimate best interest. We are made to worship Him. He is deserving of it. Uh, and that in itself is more than enough reason for us to conform our lives completely to his word. Right? We have a duty and obligation to God. But what we also find is that this is the path to true and everlasting joy. Sin has twisted us, has twisted our wants and desires so that they are now disordered. Christ redeems us and restores us to become what we were intended to be. God is not forbidding us from enjoying the good things he made. He is forbidding us from the abuse and misuse of the good things he has made. Even the commands regarding worship, right, the commands that we worship him alone, that we do so rightly, reverently, and regularly, are good for us. For it is only in communion with God that we find our meaning in life. To may know man's chief end, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Christ restores us to proper worship. Christ restores us to live in harmony with one another, and He restores us to a proper use of the good things of the earth. His law is our guide and our friend. God is a God of abundant generosity, overflowing with grace, with gifts, and with joy, and we will one day enter that joy fully. We must, not misrepresent the God, we must not misrepresent God or the gospel of freedom in Christ. And to close, we must not be poor representatives of God by falling into biting. Paul warns, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. A church where people are biting and devouring each other will not be functioning as God intends. That body will not be accomplishing the growth in grace in the lives of his members, nor will they be representing Christ well to the world. We must display the character of our God and Savior, both through our conduct and through our faithful proclamation of the message of freedom that God has given us in the Gospel. The Gospel sets us free. We are free from the burdens we once carried, the weights of guilt. The curse of sin, the yoke of slavery to sin, death, and Satan that has all been removed. And so we are set free in Christ. We are set free so that, like Israel out of Egypt, we may now serve our true master. And his law is a law of love. If we understand and apply it properly, it will not lead to the legalism and divisiveness of the Judaizers, but will lead to a church body serving one another through love, demonstrating joy, unity, and mutual concern, which will all find its consummation at the marriage supper of the Lamb as we enter into the presence of the God at whose right hand there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. May our lives and our love for one another display the goodness of God and the freedom we have.